Ready to learn why cash flow and compassion are not mutually exclusive? Each week, brand strategist, speaker, and author Maria Ross will introduce you to the trailblazing brands and leaders who embrace empathetic tactics to reap huge rewards. You'll learn about winning teams, brand wins and fails, unforgettable customer experience, and bold leadership decisions fueled by compassion. You'll get the latest trends and research, discover practical ways to infuse more empathy into your work and life, and hear from innovative market leaders who've smashed outdated models and redefined success. Welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast, the show that proves empathy isn't just good for society, it's great for business. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Empathy Edge. I'm your host, Maria Ross, and I'm excited today to talk to you about mindfulness, We're going to talk about the link between mindfulness and empathy and why there is a strong correlation between leaders and teams that operate with mindfulness and how they perform, how they innovate, how they collaborate. My guest today is Renee Medi. She's a mindfulness expert and the founder of With Pause. And Renee and I go way back in that I worked with her to launch not one, but two of her other businesses. But She's always been following a path of mindfulness, and her expertise in the area is fantastic, especially in the fact that she works with executives, with leaders, with high-performing individuals on how to adopt more mindfulness for better well-being and physical health, yes, but also better performance and better relationships. And I interviewed her for the book, The Empathy Edge, so her name might look familiar, With 20 plus years of experience working with individuals, teams, and organizations in high pressure situations, Renee's really skillful at facilitating change with ease and making the seemingly impossible possible, which is what I love about her. She is a mindfulness expert and, as I mentioned, the founder of With Pause, where she helps individuals, entrepreneurs, and teams embrace mindfulness for better performance. She founded a mindfulness-based preschool in West Seattle in 2010, and you'll hear that crazy story, and has since transitioned to working with individuals, teams, and organizations as an executive coach, leadership development consultant, and facilitator using mindfulness as the lens. She began her corporate journey after graduating with a BS in business administration in several Fortune 100 companies. Renee has a master's in early childhood education and a master's in special education, and currently she's a PhD candidate studying business psychology, interested in the impact that mindfulness can have on leadership and organizational effectiveness. She's developed a three-phase protocol and incorporates a variety of tools and strategies to support leaders looking to deal with overwhelm and uncertainty while helping them gain clarity and a path to action. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. First, we'll talk about defining what the heck mindfulness even means, especially in the workplace context. And as I mentioned, we'll correlate mindfulness with performance. And then the good stuff, Renee is going to share some actionable ways for you to start embracing mindfulness in small steps and small doses, and not only improve your work performance and your innovation, but your personal relationships as well. This was such a great, rich conversation, and I can't wait for you to take a listen. Stay tuned. Welcome again to another episode of the Empathy Edge podcast, where I am thrilled to have my friend, my colleague, a past client, Renee Medi, the founder of With Pause and mindfulness expert with us today to talk about what the heck mindfulness is and its link to empathy. Welcome to the show, Renee. I'm so happy to have you. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah. So let's, let's kick off the conversation with the question that I'm sure if you got a nickel every time somebody asked you, you'd be wealthy by now. But what is mindfulness? And just as a side note, what I love the most about you is that you approach this from a very practical perspective, from a perspective of how does it fit into your life if you are busy, if you are ambitious, if you work in the corporate environment, or if you're an entrepreneur. So with that lens, can you talk to us about what mindfulness is and why it matters? Yeah. So there's lots of definitions of mindfulness. You, you know, you can do a quick Google search and lots of things come up. And John Kabat-Zinn's definition usually comes up most frequently. But the definition that I've been using lately that I love because of some of the things that you shared is noticing what you are doing, thinking, feeling, and sensing when you are doing, thinking, feeling, and sensing it with curiosity and kindness. Mm, I love that. Yeah. That doesn't sound too woo-woo at all. Like it's really just about being, it literally being in the moment. Yeah. It's a level of awareness. It's a level of, I, I like noticing. I use the word noticing a lot because noticing can kind of encapsulate the, the non-judgment. We're not analyzing it. We're just recognizing that it's there. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like when you are in that mode of noticing, you know, I always have this image that when you're, you're spinning out of control, right. And you're stressed and you're anxious. I feel like you're, no one can see me, but you're all up in your head. Like your head's got the spinning wheel going on. And yeah. right now I'm circling my fingers next to my head, almost like I'm crazy kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but when you take a minute to notice, it kind of drops you into this place in your body and your mind where you're like, huh, why am I doing that? Why, yes. why am I feeling this way? What's, what's triggering this for me? Yes. Yeah. Just the act of noticing alone can interrupt some of the chaos. Mm -hmm. Interrupts the chaos. I like that. So as I mentioned, you, you work with individuals, of course, and you've done a lot of speaking. And as I mentioned in your bio, you know, early on, you got into mindfulness when you opened a preschool to that had a curriculum based in mindfulness for children, which is so important about creating our future leaders. But obviously very quickly, you saw how this was so applicable to their parents. And then also who their parents work with and executives and corporate teams. And I know you do a lot of work with those types of people. So can you talk about the work that you do with leaders and teams and execs? Why do they bring you in to talk or to facilitate a workshop? What are they looking to achieve? And what are some of the benefits that your clients and other companies that embrace mindfulness experience as a result of that? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, you know, I started this work 10 years ago. And like you said, when I started it in preschool curriculum, and then I started working with the parents who were in stressful jobs, they were bringing me in because they were recognizing the amount of stress that they were going through at work, that their team was going through. So they used to bring me in specifically for mindfulness. And I was starting to bring mindfulness in early enough that I just was able to kind of hit that wave where mindfulness, right before mindfulness kind of hit, you know, time and all yeah. of the, yeah. <laughs> and so I can't, they brought me in specifically for mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Now what I've recognized over the past, I'd say three, four, five years is that I really no longer lead with mindfulness. Mindfulness is just the 
tool or the technique that I'm using. It's the perspective really that I'm coming from mm-hmm. to talk about all the other things, communication, conflict resolution, you know, prioritization, goal setting, all of those things. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you would ask what the definition of mindfulness is. It's also two different things. It's a tool you can use, right? Bringing like a level of awareness and noticing, but it's also a way of being. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's how you show up in the world. It's how you show up with your team as a leader. And so mostly now it's just the way we view things. And, you know, I work with a lot of different people from individual contributors looking to get into leadership all the way up to people in the C-suite mm-hmm. uh, and founders and entrepreneurs of, you know, startups. And so what I've noticed is that not everybody's in the same place. So not everybody is as receptive to it. So I really have to kind of, you know, connect with them on a personal level and then bring in the noticing, the awareness at wherever they are, you know. So whether it's like a time task audit that I'm doing with them because they're feeling super overwhelmed. And particularly now with what's going on and working from home and maybe having kids at home or not having a separate office space, Mm -hmm. right? That it's just a lot harder to stay present because there's lots of distractions. So a lot of the benefits are to just bring that level of awareness because without the awareness, you can't take action. You can't do anything about it. You can't, you know, you can't choose to shift your attention if you don't know your attention is being pulled away. Exactly. Well, and right there, you talk about the fact that your work is grounded in empathy because you're meeting your clients where they are. And sometimes They're not ready to hear the word mindfulness, but they do know they want to collaborate better as a team, or they Mm -hmm. want to be more innovative, or they want to have better interpersonal relationships. Whatever the specific organizational challenge or group dynamic challenge is that they're trying to solve, it sounds like with your work, you've found a really great mindset and tool to add to their toolbox that says, hey, you know, if, if you add more mindfulness, a mindfulness practice of some sort, to the equation, you can achieve all those benefits. And I think it's sort of just like when I talked about the benefits of empathy on an organization, some of these concepts that that people have been very skittish of talking about in the workplace, we're starting to get their attention by having the data around it. (laughs) So I would love for you to share your personal story of how you you embarked on mindfulness and, and even maybe what brought you to even starting the preschool in the first place. Yeah, I think um, (laughs) it's such an interesting story. So I'm an East Coaster, completely type A perfectionist. And now I say I'm a recovering perfectionist. And that really only happened through my mindfulness journey. Mm -hmm. And so in the financial and real estate crash in 2008, I had a lot of people going through, you know, family and friends going through mild depression, anxiety, job loss, all kinds of things were happening, kind of similar to now, you know, similar kind of environment. And I had the preschool, I actually had a daycare at the time, and this is how you and I met, was because I was trying to get my wedding planning business off the ground. Mm -hmm. And so I got married, started having children, and so I started an in-home daycare so that I could focus on my wedding planning business. Mm -hmm. And daycare was not my thing. I, I knew education has always been a passion of mine, more as kind of like a hobby, like caring how people learn. It's really about human behavior. So it's interesting the work I do now because I've always been very fascinated with the brain and human behavior and I didn't particularly like school. So I was creating a model (laughs) that was like 
really tapped into how we learn and our interest and our curiosity. Mm -hmm. And so when the market crashed, of course, my business crashed. And I was looking for way like watching people fall apart around me. I'm like, there's got to be something I have this, you know, small group of children that are just so wide eyed, open, ready to learn, not a lot of baggage, right? Like they've Mm -hmm. only been on this earth two or three years. And um, very in the moment. Yeah, very, very in the moment, right? Which is often our as adults is our biggest challenge. And we're trying to always take them out of the moment. Mm -hmm. And so I was just doing some research online. And I, I came across, I think I googled like anxiety and children, and mindfulness kept coming up. And I did, you know, you mentioned woo woo earlier. That was my perception of mindfulness was it's like, I'm like, oh, that's hippy dippy stuff. It's woo woo. Mm-hmm. But there was a curriculum I could order on Amazon. I got it in two days. And <laughs> <laughs> I was like, let me try it. Right. And so I noticed a few things. So it was great. The children were responding to it. Mm-hmm. But what I noticed was at the time, you know, there's something in preschool called like choice time. Uh, we, we now call it work time. It comes from Montessori, but it's the time, it's like an hour of the day where they're choosing the different areas that they can go to. So it's semi-unstructured and it, it's just to get them to play, right? To mm-hmm. allow them to play. And I noticed that the days that we didn't do, and at the time I didn't know it was mindfulness, but I would get them um, when they were thinking about their choice time to look at the sand timer and just kind of, and like, you can watch the sand, you can listen to the sand, um, because it was this big timer. And I noticed the days that we did that, that the volume didn't get as loud in the 45 minutes to an hour. And that cleanup was a lot quicker. So like looking back, I think they were more focused. Yeah. Right. And so, and then there's something in the nervous system, you know, when you start practicing mindfulness, like the breath activates the parasympathetic side of your nervous system, which is your rest and digest. Mm -hmm. It can, it can calm you down, right? Mm-hmm. So as I'm bringing this curriculum into the school, my type A personality, it was like, I need to get certified in this. <laughs> I, need as, to, I need to be graded. Yeah. I, need to be, I, I need to be good at this. I need to be, get this perfect. I need to do it right. This is why you right? and I get along so well. Yes. <laughs> and so, so, and it just happened that a, a program came out. Mindful Schools was a great organization that I trained through mm-hmm. and they came out with a year long program. So I was doing that program. Now, when I started that program, I would say my mindfulness practice was intermittent to say the least. Uh, You know, it's like I didn't have time. I was busy. Mm -hmm. I was a mom of three children under the age of three and a half. Oh, my gosh. And I just started the transition from the daycare to the preschool. And so like and I prided myself on multitasking. Mm. And I prided myself on being able to handle a lot without visibly anybody like seeing any kind of ruffled feathers or chaos, right? Mm -hmm. And my internal world was, you know, up and down, but I I can hold a lot, you know, more, I think, than the average person, the amount of stress because of my mindset, I think. So through the certification process, we had to do an in-person week together that included two and a half to three days of silence, complete silence. And I was open to it. I'm a risk taker. I'm adventurous. I was excited. Like, can I do it? You know, you were like challenging yourself. I was challenging myself. Totally. Totally. But what I didn't expect was the massive transformation just coming out of two and a half days of silence that 
it did for me. And wow. I'm not saying that anybody has to go for the transformation to happen, needs a two and a half right. days of silent retreat. And we're like, going to talk about that in a little bit too. Yeah. <laughs> I've always loved your philosophy on that, but that is amazing that that you sort of were your own proof point in so many ways. Like I love how you you implemented some of this in the school and then you noticed what happened with the children's behavior. And then you took it on as a personal challenge to say, I'm going to try this and noticing immediately the impact. What did it do for you in the days that followed that you noticed in terms of your work or your productivity or your, your mood or happiness? What, what did you notice there after that? Oh, I'm actually getting emotional. I was not expecting this. Um, (laughs) It impacted my entire world. I can't even tell you. So the the transformational moment for me and my experience that happened was where we were sleeping and where where we were eating was about a 10-minute walk through the woods um, if you wanted to, or you could just go up on this paved road. On the retreat, when you were on the retreat. When I was on the retreat. Okay, got it. And so so what the retreat looked like was basically uh, 7 a.m. was the first 30-minute silent sit of the day where you're just paying attention to your breathing, right? And there's some instruction around it so that can get a little bit nuanced, but you know, for all intents and purposes of this call, it was basically from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. at night was alternating um, sitting and walking and silence. So when you're sitting, you're just paying attention to your breath. When a distraction comes, you notice the distraction, you bring attention back to your breathing. And then with walking, you're paying attention to every movement and every step as your foot hits the ground. Mm-hmm. And then you eat in silence and you are trying not to look at any, I mean, the, the location itself was very stripped back. So they remove a lot of these distractions, but you know, after, depending on your personality, after an hour of this or a day of this, you're like reading the fire hydrant label or the, or like the fire extinguisher yeah. label or the signs on the wall that, right. Mm-hmm. And so we were day two uh, after breakfast, no day three after breakfast, day three after breakfast. And we were the only people on campus until that the evening prior. And so I got up, I went to breakfast and breakfast ended at eight 30 and it was eight 20. I knew this cause I had to get back to the hall by eight 30 and I was walking down the path and the group that came in was a business group that was not silent. And this gentleman was running up the path, like walking really fast running, right? Mm -hmm. And like he was dressed up in his business casual. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many yards away he was, like 100 yards away or maybe even a little further. But I could feel like a wall of like, it just stopped me dead in my tracks. And it was just his energy coming towards me of that frenetic pace, Mm -hmm. you know? And I stopped dead in my tracks and I looked at him and I was like, oh my gosh that was me two days ago. Wow. And it was in that moment that I vowed I would never go back to that pace again. And so how did that impact after I left the retreat? So it was about two and a half days of like full on silence. And then the rest, the other six days were kind of in and out of activities and silence. So my family picks me up. They drove down from Seattle, picked me up in California. And one of the instructors was talking about how sometimes when you go into these retreats and come out of it, you can have this feeling of like molasses. If you actually like rest your nervous system, slow your nervous system down, there's this kind of sense of like, you know, like you're <laughs> yeah, just kind of yeah. like, cause you've slowed um, everything down and now you're right. entering the, the, the fast lane again. Yeah. 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 
So um, we were at a center in Petaluma. And so my family picks me up and we go to get some lunch. Now, I'm not a person when I was with all those little kids and in a startup, I never sat down and ate, right? Mm -hmm. And if I did, it was like super fast. I was usually eating in the car, Mm -hmm. um, like shoveling my food in. Right. And so we go to this restaurant and I kept the pace. I kept the pace through the entire trip. Um, And my husband's like looking at me, everybody's done eating. So the first thing that happened was he says to me, he's like, what is going on with you? You're you're like moving like molasses, Uh which is the exact word that my teacher used in the retreat. And it's a word that we never use in our household. Like we don't have molasses in the household. So the fact that he used that word. Nobody uses molasses. Yeah. Right. And I was like, (laughs) that's weird. Um, Uh And then I only had half a burger left and I had barely touched my fries. And so it was just like, and I wasn't hungry. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it was like, it impacted how I ate. It impacted how I related to people. When we got back, the, my kiddos had a camp to go to. Uh-huh. Now mornings in our household, you know, yelling, we got to go get your shoes on, right? Like this can be mm-hmm. a very common thing that yes. happens in households in the morning, right? Yes. So what I ended up doing was getting up two hours earlier Oh my gosh. Because what I realized, what I was trying to do was get three children out of the house in 30 minutes because I wanted to sleep until seven uh-huh. and we had to leave at 7.30. <laughs> so I was causing my own stress around like, we got to go. Why aren't you dressed? Meanwhile, I'm trying to get ready. So when right. I got back, I woke up earlier. I got myself ready. I prepped everything that they needed. I was more organized. And so like, those are just some of the real like, instantaneous things that changed for me. And then relationships changed, my business changed, everything changed. That's amazing. That is so amazing. I mean, and I think this, this is what I want to get back to in a second when we, when we share some practical ways for, for busy people, type A people, corporate people, leaders, trailblazers to embrace mindfulness so that they can they can do more and experience more. It's not even do more. I hate to say it that way. So we always say to be more productive, but it's not about getting more done. It's about them getting more done well, getting things done well and clearly and with intention and thoughtfulness. But before we get into that, I want to talk to you a little bit about some information you shared when I interviewed you for the book, The Empathy Edge. So obviously we talked a lot And a lot of what we talked about was relevant to the leadership chapter, uh, leadership section about how do you strengthen your own empathy as an individual, whether you are a leader or just any individual in the organization, how do you strengthen your own empathy? And of the habits and traits that I present, the very first one, and there's a very intentional reason why I put it first, was because of the conversations I had with you, which was practice presence. And this notion of if we are not even grounded with our own house in order and our head is full of stuff from the past, from the future, from our own insecurities and fears and anxieties, there's there's no space to take on and try to see someone else's point of view. So can you elaborate a little bit more about what you mean by practice presence? And what I always say when I'm out talking is it doesn't mean you have to go spend three weeks at a silent retreat. So talk to me about what you, why is presence so important? What's been the correlation you've seen with successful individuals and their ability to be present? And 
why is that one of the most important ways that we can not only get in touch with our empathy, but be more effective as human beings? Yeah, such a great question. Like you mentioned earlier, I'm all about practical and, mm-hmm. um, and putting things into action, you know, very action oriented. And so the first thing that comes to mind when talking about practicing presence is like the word embodiment, like em- walking the talk, embodying the qualities uh, of presence because it has an impact on everybody around you. And so a significant kind of mentor in education is a gentleman named Parker Palmer. And one of the kind of core tenets or phrases that I've taken away from him over the years is you teach who you are, Mm. right? And so I've just taken that same concept and brought it into leadership is you lead who you are and that's leading from within. So when you can bring some awareness into your life, when you can notice, you know, the things that really tick you off or the things that really bring you joy or what drains your energy, what fuels your energy, when you can start noticing those pieces about yourself that has an impact on how you can connect with other people. And so like, I know Brene Brown has a great little video on empathy, right? And in order to do those, to fuel connection and those four pieces that she talks about, perspective, non-judgment, recognizing emotions and communicating that, that with people, is there has to be an understanding of something within yourself to understand the feelings of another, right? Mm-hmm. And so the practicing presence part is just what are the practical ways that you just bring a little more pause into your life so that you can be fully there with someone. Mm -hmm. So you can lead with who you are, not who people expect you to be, not with, you know, what you think society wants from you or how you're supposed to be as a leader. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's really coming from, you know, headspace and heart space. Right. Yeah. And also you're, you're sort of practicing on yourself. You know, there's those Buddhist teachings around the fact that in order to love, you must love yourself in order to be compassionate. You must be compassionate with yourself. And in order to be empathetic, you have to be empathetic with yourself. And that means knowing yourself because you're almost practicing that ability to read someone by first learning how to read yourself. Yeah. If you don't know what anger feels like, how are you going to recognize anger in somebody else? Exactly. Right. Exactly. And recognize what might be triggering someone or recognize when a situation is escalating, you know, being able to be present enough to sense the energy, like you sensed from that person running by you. Um, Right. You know, oftentimes you'll hear people go, oh, you're so good at sort of reading the room. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just not good at doing that. Or like, how did, how did you sense that that person was mad? That's not what I heard. But only when you're present, can you, it, it's not some superpower. It's actually just right. people that are more aware and observant and present. Um, yeah. there's, there's a, there's a great show, which I don't think is any on the air anymore. It's called elementary and it's like a modern day Sherlock Holmes. Right. And many, if you watch many iterations of different Sherlock Holmes movies, they've demystified his skill at solving mysteries and distilled it down to the fact that he's just present and he notices things more than other people, right? He notices the 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 wrinkled shirt or the 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 like tar stain on the bottom of somebody's shoe or whatever. And that's how he solves the mystery. It's not some like 
crazy supernatural gift. It's just literally he's observant and he knows yeah. what's going on. And I feel like it's very similar when you're trying to be a good leader mm -hmm. and you're trying to be an empathetic leader is that you have to have that ability to notice. And exactly what you said, if you can't even notice it in yourself, how are you going to notice it in other people? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So that, let's get to some actions then, because what I loved also that you shared for the book was this idea of, again, it doesn't have to be seven days at an ashram somewhere <laughs> and yep. that you can start small and that it's called a practice for a reason. So talk to us about some ways people listening can go, okay, starting tomorrow, what are a few things I can try and what do I need to keep my eye on for the long term as I'm trying to become a more mindful leader? Yeah, I think, you know, like I said, there's a range of where people are. And um, I had the wonderful opportunity to sit with Sharon Salzberg on a retreat. And we had a small group session with her. And somebody had asked, like, do you have to practice mindfulness every day? And this really stuck with me. She, you know, she kind of debated like, well, I don't know if you really have to sit every day. She said, but this is why I sit every day is because when we go and set out, you know, whatever the research says, maybe it's only three or four days a week, you know, 10 minutes a day. Day one is Monday, right? And you're like, oh, I got five, six more days, right? Day two rolls around, day three rolls around, and all of a sudden you're on day five. And you're like, well, now I can't sit for three days, so I'm just not even going to sit at all in practice, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so it's very similar, like, to working out and going to the gym or something mm -hmm. like that. And she said, so sitting daily takes – the negotiation out of everything. Mm, and it's just that. something you do, just like you brush your teeth. And so for my super type A, can't sit still, got too much going on, it's one breath because it takes one conscious breath to presence to just be here now. And so we take an inhale together and an exhale together. And that's where you start, you know, and then you'll know because you'll want to do more. Right. And so like I practiced my type A personality practice, like I'm sitting in the right posture, I'm doing the right dosage. And my teacher said to me, she said, he's like, I want you to let go of the practice. I'm like, what do you mean? Like I've been sitting every day for like 425 <laughs> days yeah. right, for 20 minutes a day. And he said with your personality, and that can become a thing in like the mindfulness field is like, what's your practice look like? How long are you like, it's like, it's like a competition. Yeah. Right. And that's totally. like, my, you know, mindfulness isn't about changing I know, anything. It's, it's like being a dance aware. Off. I don't know. Like it's, it's like <laughs> totally. a dance off, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for me, for my personality type, it's like, it starts becoming like, that's not the point of practice, right? It's about being present. So if my, if I'm being present and I'm like, there's a lot going on in my world, what is presence going to look like for me today? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just sitting in a chair, drinking my coffee, my tea, my water, whatever it is and just bringing some stillness. Mm -hmm. So then for me, it was about just bringing stillness mm -hmm. for a while, right? It wasn't about time and what time of day I did it and how long I did it. And so you, you find your way. You, you, like I like to bring a lot of play and curiosity to it because we can, we can get so rigid with how to do it correctly or you know what's the best way to do it. Try some things out, see what works for you. For some people it's walking, you know, mindful walking. For some people, it's eating. Mm -hmm. um, for some, it's better in the morning. For some, it's better in the evening. 
And so especially if you're super new to it, it can help to have a structure, kind of a guideline, but Mm -hmm. just to play with, you know, what works best, what minutes work best, what location works best. And it doesn't even need, I mean, this is, this is something, I mean, these are words out of your mouth that I talk about in many of my talks where it's like, what are some of the things you can do? What does my, what does practicing presence mean? It doesn't just mean yoga, right? It can mean like exactly what you said, sitting with a a latte or a tea without a screen or a phone in front of you for five minutes, 10 minutes, just to feeling the wind or the sun on your skin. Exactly. Or, or taking a walk. I know a lot Mm -hmm. of people, my husband included that take walking meetings when, when they're on the phone, it just, it helps them stay in the moment and in the conversation for some people it's knitting for some people it's exercising Uh, for some people it is meditation and yoga and it doesn't always have to be what I have learned because I'm, I'm still stumbling through it myself. I'm, I'm, I'm behind you, but uh, I'm, I'm trying is that for me, it is the breathing thing. It's the focusing on the breath. And, and when I think, well, what am I going to think about during this practice? The one, the thing I fall back on is just notice how your body feels like, that's just an easy one for me. Like my mind needs something to, to focus on. So that's what I focus on in the deep breathing is let me just, how do my shoulders feel? How do, how does my back feel? How does my mm-hmm. head feel? Am I feeling stressed? Where am I feeling that stress? And that only takes me about five or 10 minutes again, when I do it, but it's, it's so impactful. And in preparation for our interview today, I did my daily calm on my calm. Yes. <laughs> I felt like I had to, yeah. but, um, but yeah, I, I love what you're saying about if you don't make it daily, it it's sort of an excuse to procrastinate. It's an excuse to not turn it into a habit and like wait till the next day or wait till the next day, which doesn't mean you have to beat yourself up if you miss a day for whatever's going on. But it's it's something so readily available to us that after someone listens to this podcast interview or tomorrow morning when they wake up, they can take five deep inhales and exhales and just play with it and see how it impacts the rest of their day. Well, and I think it's such an important point you make too about going into your body because that that's the practice is coming back into the body because the only thing really reliable in this world, right, especially right now is the information we're getting from our system, mm-hmm. right? And so if something, a conversation is triggering you, you know, there's a lot of just conflict with families and divide and things like that. And it's causing all kinds of stress in the system. Mm-hmm. And if we're not paying attention to what are the things in our system, our nervous system that are there, because that happens before any of the story that we attach to the thinking, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, presence is an experience. It's a feeling in your body you can go out and read all kinds of things and learn all about mindfulness. Right. But it's very different when someone, and, and if you think about like for people listening, if you think about like who are the most inspiring or admirable people or leaders in your life, like what is the quality about them? It's something, maybe it's something they said, but oftentimes it's something in how you feel when you're around them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, that all depends on how you're wired because I, you know, for an example, like I'm very energetic and high energy and, but the managers and the leaders I remember are the ones that could ground me, the ones that were grace under pressure when yeah. I wasn't. And yeah. 
I always want to be like that. And I'm not often like that. I tend to just go into just like ah, planning mode or whatever, when things fall apart. And it's those leaders that had the like, well, hold on, the sky's not falling. Let's take a breath. Let's, let's look at this. Even if whether they were high energy or low energy leaders, that wasn't, that wasn't the trait that drew me to them. It was their, their calm in a storm. Yeah. Mentality. They have space. They had space and they have space. Yeah. And it was almost like everything's going to be all right when mm-hmm. you were around them. You know, you, you felt, you felt seen, you felt heard, you felt valued, you felt safe. And, you know, I, I, I know I'm lining up another speaker that's going to talk about psychological safety, but it's kind of all wrapped up in that, but it's those leaders that have that presence whether they call it mindfulness or not, you know, whether they do have a mindfulness practice or not, maybe it's innate for them. I don't know, but there's a, there's a, a solidness to that, that makes you feel safe, that you can trust someone that you can rely on them. And for me, that's the thing that when I see that in someone else, it's what can bring me down Mm -hmm. to the presence, to the present in a good way, like not bring me down, but bring me back to earth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's those mirror neurons. Like people are always, we're always feeding off of each other. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's so much in the unconscious process that mindfulness just brings awareness to it. And, you know, and sometimes it's applicable for whatever is going on, but it's, it's giving us choice and agency of, you know, I'm really angry right now. And that is sometimes okay. And I'm going to have to have a difficult conversation with you. Right. Right. But if I'm not, if I'm not conscious of it, I may just lash out. Exactly. So it's the difference between like noticing and then choosing to have that conversation and responding to a situation versus that automatic reaction. Mm-hmm. I mean, I noticed that a lot recently, especially we were talking about having kids during, during the pandemic and trying to school from home. Yeah. And I find when I get the most frustrated with my son it's not because I'm frustrated with him. I, f- I finally started to reflect on this. It's because I'm upset for him. I'm upset that he's not experiencing school right now and he's not with his teacher and his friends. And that's what's coming out. Not that he actually did anything wrong. It's just like, yeah. I'm so frustrated. I can't do anything for him right now. And you know, it sounds like such a little thing, but for me as like a redhead Italian growing up with like trigger happy finger. Like I just, (laughs) you know, that is like, that's like a breakthrough for me to realize I'm not actually mad about what I think I'm mad about. And, and being able to, in the moment, even tell my six-year-old, honey, I'm sorry. I snapped at you. I'm actually not mad at you. I'm mad because I'm just upset about this whole situation. Like then I can finally be the parent I want to be, even when I'm not perfect in showing him what that recognition looks like you know, and not like patting myself on the back, but it took, it took years. If someone had actually talked to me about mindfulness, maybe in my early Mm twenties, I could have saved myself a lot of heartache. (laughs) Yeah. But that realization is powerful, right? Because it changes the conversation, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you think about those conversations you can now have with your son, when you recognize that moment, because, you know, in my, like with mindfulness and awareness, we're not saying that you can't be angry you can't feel these things. You, you need, need to, to feel those things. Those emotions need to go through you. They need you need to yeah. release them, but then it changes how you relate to your experience. It changes how you relate to people, right? right? And that's that's the power of it. Well, and when you think about some of your negative work experiences, as I, you know, look back as I'm older and wiser and learning more about this, researching empathy, mm-hmm. you know, 
meeting wonderful experts like you and mindfulness, I look back at my negative, toxic work relationships. And I can honestly look at like the role I played in in being triggered by either someone else's negative energy mm. or where I let something escalate that didn't need, I wasn't actually mad about that. I was upset about something else, or I was upset about losing a project or you look back at so many things and you realize, oh, that's why we had a hard time collaborating. And this is what I mean, kind of going back full circle to benefits for leaders and teams. It's the more that you can embrace mindfulness as a leader, but also your responsibility is to help your team as individuals embrace mindfulness and not even just for the purpose of the work they're doing with you for that company at that moment in time, mm -hmm. but helping them for their lives, mm -hmm. like enriching their lives. We talk about, you know, healthcare benefits. That's the biggest healthcare benefit you can give your team is to help support them on their practice of mindfulness so that they can not only innovate and perform better as a team and perform better for you, but they're going to take that to their next role and into their personal lives, which is really what, you know, as you know, what my book was all about was kind of starting with the workplace, but ultimately trying to help us have better lives outside of work as well. Yeah. So any final words of wisdom you want to share with folks who might still be a little like, I don't know about this or, you know, what, do, okay. All right. I'm going to do some deep breathing tomorrow. Do you have like a little pep talk? You can give that before you go. I mean, I think the biggest thing that often gets missed or is kind of swept under the rug around mindfulness is the non-judgment part, right? And it's be gentle with yourself, like just the awareness alone, mm -hmm. or if this talk, this podcast seems to motivate you to want to learn more, like just know you're exactly where you need to be right now. And it's an opening, right? It's just keeping that open, receptive, and curious mindset. Mm -hmm. And then as you start to, you know, if you desire to practice, then try it mm -hmm. and see what it works. But, you know, just be gentle with yourself. I, I, I think love it. Biggest, biggest nugget. <laughs> well, and every journey begins with a first step, right? So just, yes, just take that first step. And, and the beautiful thing about trying to be more mindful is that every step has its rewards. It's not like you have to wait, you know, two months for the six pack abs to appear. Like you can, right. you know what I mean? Right. Um, you can have immediate impacts on your work relationships, on your personal relationships. Like you said, even coming out of that retreat, having those immediate epiphanies coming yeah. out of that. As yeah. You one little insight can just change your world for the better, you know? Totally. Thank you so much, Renee, for joining us today. How can folks get in touch with you and find out more about you and your work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, my website is www.withpause, that's W-I-T-H-P-A-U-S-E.com. And all Wonderful. my contact information is on there and you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Great. And we will have your links in the show notes as well. So thanks for joining us. And folks, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, please rate and review and tune in to our next episode. Thank you, Renee. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of The Empathy Edge. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with others who want to redefine success and change the game. For more on how empathy makes you and your brand more successful, visit theempathyedge.com. 
There, you can download a free guide outlining five business benefits of empathy and a free sample chapter of Maria's book, The Empathy Edge. Until next time, remember that a more empathetic world starts with you and leads to tremendous success. Thank you.